Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest today is Devin Tavona, head of travel at Kuba Software. Devin was the founder and CEO of Pana, a travel software company that went through Techstars Boulder in 2015 and subsequently raised over $15 million on its way to being successfully acquired by Coupa earlier this year. I originally met Devin during the Techstars program six years ago and have always been impressed by his desire and determination to build not only a great product, but a great company culture as well, which you'll hear about in his biggest lesson. Devin, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Uh, awesome. We'd love to hear a little bit about your background and, and what you're up to these days. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, born and raised in Colorado, went to CU for school and right out of school, had the really fortunate opportunity to not be burdened by a, a lot of uh, debt from school. So, and, and always knew that I wanted to start a company uh, and, and so really found this as the, the perfect opportunity to try it. Went into business with a, a good friend of mine, Sam Felsenthal, who you should also have on this podcast. Uh, he's 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 fantastic, and and we started a company which went through a ton of different names, uh, but ended with the name Pana. We raised about twelve million dollars. We were building corporate travel software, so helping our customers spend their travel more wisely, make their travel dollars go further, and take care of their travelers on the road. And uh, most recently, this this February, we sold the business kind of in the middle of the pandemic, opportunistically, to a, a company out of uh, San Mateo called Coupa, or about a $26 billion public company, their business spend management platform. Uh, so they handle everything from expense reports to invoices to procurement processes to sourcing processes for, for companies. And the one piece of spend that they didn't have their arms around was travel. Uh, so it was kind of a perfect fit. Uh, we were at a crossroads in the company that that made sense to sell, and I, I think you know ultimately created a great outcome for everyone. Well, huge congrats on that. Obviously, another another win for the for the ecosystem, and so happy to see you you and Sam and Darko and everyone there have so much success. A couple questions for you. One is the obvious question, Devin, of how. You navigate as a business travel company during the pandemic, right? It must have been a lot smooth, smooth sailing, a lot of fun, easy times, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, lots of easy times. It was absolutely wild. I remember the board meeting in in March when uh, the the pandemic was really starting to hit, and we we had the board meeting in person. And we were all kind of sitting there and we're like, should we be doing this? You know, remember that weird time right at the beginning of the pandemic where we we're all like, you know, I don't, I don't really quite know what we should be doing here. And it was wild because we were showing this chart. We were showing the last quarter and it was the best sales quarter ever. We closed a couple million dollars of business in a single quarter. We were super proud of those results. And then the next slide showed like revenue falling off of a cliff, like literally going from to 5% what it was the month previous because we were a transactional business. We charge our customers per trip. And and it was just this crazy juxtaposition where we were at such an amazing point of the company's growth. We were really hitting our product market fit curve and the pandemic really stopped us. Um, and I think, you know, 
the probably the smartest thing that we did in executing our response to the pandemic is we assumed that it was going to be worse rather than assuming that it was going to be better. And we made some pretty deep cuts uh, to personnel, to spending um, right after the pandemic hit. Because the, the mindset that we were operating in is if, if we were pessimistic and you know, the pandemic recovery looked better than what we expected it to, we could start reinvesting. And that's always a better place to come from rather than a place from cutting from a place from, from growing. And I'm really glad that we did that. And in fact, our sale to Coupa had nothing to do with cash. We, we actually had cash to make it through the pandemic and kind of looking at what recovery curves look now. I, I think we would have made it. But you know, the, the offer from Coupa was just, just too great and the synergies just made too much sense. That's, that's awesome. And, and Devin, the other question I had for you, I mean, I've, I've known you for a while. And uh, one of the things I've admired most about you is just your, your grit and your optimism in the face of challenges. And I know a little bit of the story of Panda. I mean, you went through a few twists and turns with, with pivoting the business and We'd just love to hear a little bit uh, about that. I, I like the positive spin of grit. Uh, the, the negative spin could be <laughs> wandering around in the dark for a while and not finding product market fit, which, you know, I think is, is the untold chapter of a lot of companies. You know, no one ever talks about Airbnb in the days when they thought that you literally had to have an air mattress. They were turning away people from the platform who had guest bedrooms that they wanted to rent. They thought you literally had to have an air mattress because it was Airbnb and you had to serve breakfast. And you know, there, there was so much of a market that they weren't tapping into because they were so steadfast on that. Um, but, but yeah, we, we definitely went through a, a lot of those similar learnings uh, in the early stages of the business. We started out thinking that we were going to be a, a service for small and medium. Uh, actually, we thought we were going to be a service for consumers at the beginning. Kidding, really learned that uh, at that point we would be competing with Priceline and Expedia, who you know collectively those two companies make up about five percent of Google's ad revenue, and so the leisure travel space really is just this gigantic ad conversion funnel. And so we pivoted from that business, pivoted into working with small and medium-sized businesses on their travel, and learned that we were still competing in the same space. Small and medium-sized businesses book their travel exactly like consumers do. They go on Priceline and they go on Expedia. It wasn't until a lot of painful learnings and a lot of a lot of capital that we really learned that the true market opportunity for us was in the corporate enterprise travel space. Great. So, you know, Devin, you're a Denver native. Would love to hear your perspective on, you know, the Denver tech scene now and how you've seen it evolve over the last several years. I absolutely love the Denver tech scene. You know, when I graduated from CU, Sam and I were really trying to make the decision of, of where do we start this business. And we, we were considering the Bay Area, but it felt a little bit like moving to Hollywood to become an actor. <laughs> and the other thing that you get here in the Denver tech scene that that you don't get really in any other tech scene that I've seen that I think was really pioneered by by Cohen and the folks at Techstars is, is this give first mentality uh, that's just pervasive across the entire scene. I mean, you can meet with competitors and spend an hour sharing industry facts, ideas, thoughts, uh, tips, um, and, and there's just a, a feeling here in the tech scene that that all boats rise. And, and as the tech scene's gotten bigger and bigger, I'm just really glad that we've retained that. I, I hope that we we always retain that element. Um, but you asked also, what's the biggest thing that that's changed? And and I think the biggest thing that's changed is there's just so much more capital here, which I'm super excited about. You know, a bunch of seed funds uh, have started here. And a bunch of Series A funds are really looking at this market as a, as a big opportunity. And I just think that that's really exciting. And it's going to mean that this, this space is, industry is going to grow a ton. 
Yep. Yeah, is a relatively new transplant to Denver. I think, you know, what you mentioned about the give first mentality and sort of the collaborative nature of everyone was immediately clear to me as soon as I got here from, you know, people being willing to make connections and how welcoming. And to your point, you know, that collaboration, I think, helps everyone get better faster than if everyone was doing it on their own. And I think that that's going to be a big driver of Denver's success long term. So, Devin, shifting to, to why we're here in your biggest lesson, I'm sure over the course of building, running, and selling Panda that you've learned a bunch of different lessons. But we'd love to dive in and learn what your biggest lesson was during that journey. Yeah, definitely. So I think my journey on this biggest lesson started in, in 2016 when the New York Times published an article called What Google Learned from Its Quest to Build a Perfect Team. And of course, like super hyperbolic description of, of an article, but I read it and found it interesting. And one of the things that the article was talking about, or the core concept of the article, was this research study that Google did called Project Aristotle. And Project Aristotle looked at you know like 5,000 different teams across Google and tried to understand what made teams most effective. Tons of really interesting things came out of the research study, but I thought the most interesting one was that there's kind of this Maslow's hierarchy of, te- uh, of needs for teams. And at the base of that, for a team to be successful, they need to have this thing that that Google was calling psychological safety, uh, which essentially meant, and their definition was, that a team felt comfortable to make mistakes, ask questions, look foolish, really be vulnerable in front of each other. And at the time, I was like, okay, this is an interesting concept. I kind of get it. I, I know that when teams trust each other, they, they work more effectively. But it wasn't, that was really at the very beginning of Pana. And it wasn't started until we started building the team to 20 people, to 30 people, to 40 people, that I really realized that psychological safety, or, you know, I think can be shortened down to just safety, uh, team members feeling like they can be vulnerable to each other, in my mind, is the single largest determinant of, of success for teams. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why, why trust matters so much. And I think that really what, what it comes down for me is because when teams don't trust each other, when people don't feel like they're in a safe environment, that breeds, I think, the antithesis to productivity and success at business, which has a bunch of different names, but you can, you can call it politics, you can call it drama, but politics and drama kills businesses and kills productivity. And not only that, it just, it makes it not fun to come to work. And, you know, all the symptoms of do you have politics at work or do you have drama at work are, are when you start, you, when you start seeing finger pointing, when you start seeing people covering up mistakes, we start seeing people, you know, doing CYA activities such as like hedging their bets and, and things like that. All of this stuff just like kills what would have been an great company or a highly productive team and makes it impossible to, to be successful. So that's why in my mind, building a environment that's safe, where people trust each other, uh, it, it being the single most important determinant of business success is, is probably my biggest lesson. That makes sense. It sounds like the article was something that, that highlighted that and got you thinking about it. Um, I've often seen that that people who really sort of, you know, codify something as their biggest lesson have not only read about it, but they have some very clear, memorable experiences of times when it both went well, and it led to great outcomes and times when it went really poorly. And you're like, I have to fix that, or I have to solve that. Would love to hear one example from each of maybe a time when 
that didn't happen and it caused some problems or some failures. And another time when that type of culture led to a big success or a big win for you and your team? Yeah, it's a great question. I think when I really started noticing that this was important and this was a problem when we, was when we started getting on our hyperscaling journey um, at, at Pana and our leadership team started growing. I ran as a CEO a weekly Monday leadership meeting where really my goal for that meeting, and I said this over and over again, is I want to talk about what's broken in the business. I want to talk about the problems. And let's, as a group, collaboratively work on those problems. You know, Look at all of the key projects that we had. We had a nice you know, dashboard that I asked everyone to update you know, as yellow, green, or red. And I didn't want to talk about the greens. You know, we, we had time to talk about greens. I wanted to talk about the yellows and the reds. And I wanted to use the collective brain power of all these smart people that I hired to start solving those problems. And I was sitting in one of these leadership meetings, and we were talking about a red project. I think it was some sort of like sales target that that we weren't hitting. And the conversation was ridiculous. First of all, we were wildly off from this target, and none of my leadership team was saying anything. Uh, my you know, engineering leaders you weren't saying anything. Product leaders weren't saying anything. Operations leaders weren't saying anything. And and you know we were having this conversation, and we were kind of beating around the bush that like this this wasn't working and the the approach. But instead, I was just kind of getting all of these non answers from the team. And I'm like, what is going on? Like we all know that there's a problem in this business. How do we collaboratively work together to? to solve this problem? What, what are all the ideas that all these people, you know, sure, product leaders and engineering leaders, they don't work in sales, but they have interesting ideas. They, they can look at a project through a new lens and, and we weren't getting any engagement. And it wasn't until a lot of executive coaching and a lot of reading and a lot of uh, uh, reflection on how I had structured those teams and, and structured that meeting is that no one felt safe in that meeting. My sales leader didn't feel safe to say, I don't really know what's going on. You know, guys, I, I, I need help. Uh, you know, what ideas do you have? And my, my other leaders didn't feel safe holding, uh, you know, their peers accountable. Um, instead it, you know, they, they were worried about risking the relationship. And so what we did was we spent a ton of time working on building two muscles on, on the team. And I think that these two muscles really are how you build psychological safety. The first muscle is trust. Building authentic relationships where you trust each other and feel safe in front of each other. And then the second muscle, and these are mutually reinforcing, is candor. Um, building a culture where you know that everyone is going to be saying what they mean and not holding something back. And the super important thing about building a trust of a culture of candor is that then there's no, you know, there's no subtext. There's no the thing that someone isn't saying. Uh, all cards are on the table. Uh, so you're not playing poker with each other. Uh, you're, you're transparent with each other. And, and both of those elements are super important because if you have candor without trust, you get what's called the obnoxious asshole, uh, <laughs> uh, syndrome where, you know, you have someone who's, being honest and being obnoxious and being, you know, calling people out, but not doing that from a place of care, not doing that from a place of, I want these people and this business to be successful, just from a place of, of wanting to be right. And I think it, it would only be fair if I'm, if I'm using these words to call out, you know, another one of my favorite books where really these, these words started being codified for me, which is A Radical Candor by Kim Scott. A fantastic book that talks about the relationship between trust and candor and really a framework that we started teaching everyone. Put words to what can kind of feel like a touchy-feely or, or nebulous, nebulous concept. I think it can be hugely valuable and I've seen it done really well, but I've also seen the concept of radical candor 
be used as a license to be an asshole. So I would love to hear how you got the good things that come with radical candor in your organization and prevented the, I'm using radical candor as an acceptable way to be an asshole. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think just one of the biggest fundamental misunderstandings about the the radical framework is that it is a license to be an obnoxious asshole. There's there's nothing productive about that. And I think the most important piece of coaching on that framework is, is helping people understand that this needs to come from a place of caring personally. And so what we ask people to do is ask, like, when you're providing this feedback, are you providing this feedback because you want to see the person that you're providing feedback to get better or be more successful in some way? Is this coming from a place of personal care for that other person? Or is this coming from a place because you're pissed or you're angry or you think you're right? And if it's coming from the latter place, it's not useful and, and doesn't have a place in, in the company. But if it is coming from a place of personal care, then it is useful. And one of the other you know, frameworks or, or ways of thinking that we ask people to think about when they're giving feedback is recognizing that this feedback is coming from a place of your perspective. Your story is, is one of the words that, that we've started using at our company to talk about you know, what this is, which is true. You know, every single one of our perceptions and our thoughts and our interactions is our perception of what's going on in the situation. We could be completely wrong. And I often find that when you come at feedback from that perspective of, hey, like I'm seeing this thing happening, I could be totally wrong, but I want to share with you my perspective on, you know, what I, what, what I think might be going wrong or some feedback that I have from you. And it's your choice to take it or leave it. I think that place of humility just turns feedback on its head. It's like, I could be wrong. I could be being an obnoxious asshole right now. And. If you've ever been on the other side of receiving feedback like that, it just feels so much better. Devin, I totally agree. And one of the things that I was struck by that, that you said that really you know fits with, with my experience is the fact that if you just leave it alone, right? If you just leave people to their own devices, particularly fast-growing organizations, there will be politics and people will be cautious. And it's something that you have to really, really spend a lot of proactive effort to manage. Wondering what your take is is on that and maybe some advice to other startups that might say, hey, like, I'm not a political person, right? I trust everybody. I'm going to give feedback. Can I just lead by example and everyone's just going to do the same thing? You're absolutely right. There's politics entropy that occurs where, you know, you drag yourself into this drama and don't even realize that you're being being dragged into this drama. And I think really the first step is acknowledging that it exists and acknowledging that that you are that you are guilty of it as well. And, and so I think there's, you said, can't I just lead by example? Yes, I think that's important, but I think people don't do that because they say politics doesn't exist here. We're a small company. That would never happen here. But it does. It happens in every company, even the company that, that has you know, the best company culture. Leaders make mistakes. People make mistakes. Culture is not about people flawlessly executing that culture every single time. It's about nudging people correctively towards the culture that you're looking for when you see, see mistakes in that culture. And so you know, I do think that so step one, just to, to summarize, step one is being conscious that it's going to happen in your company. Step two, I think, is demonstrating that vulnerability as a leader, demonstrating you know, the ability to make mistakes, admit those mistakes. And then I think step three, though, is virtue signaling um, when others exhibit the same behavior, really rewarding those behaviors publicly. Like, and, and one of the ways that we did that, Pana, is we had team rituals exercise that we did at the end of every week. And we went around and we did this 
even when we really shouldn't have all fit in the same room, we packed everyone into the same room and, and you know, made, made this possible. But we would go around and ask a couple questions. And one of the questions that we would ask is, what was your biggest fail of the week? What was the biggest mistake that you made? And uh, everyone would go around and talk about, like, I I pushed this bug to production and like 15 customers got angry. Or like, you know, I totally had this miscalculation in uh, our financials where I thought we were going to make a million extra dollars this year that that we're not going to make. And we have to figure out how how we make that up. And when like the CFO demonstrated vulnerably and the head of product demonstrated vulnerability, and there was this positive environment where it felt safe to admit mistakes and and sunshine those and figure out how we solve solve those. Having those rituals built into the fabric of culture so that they're automatic, you do them every single week. You don't even realize why they're happening or what they're reinforcing. That's probably my biggest you know, tip or advice for founders trying to create a similar environment. That is that is awesome, and I love that exercise at the end of the week. That's phenomenal. Just a way to like completely force vulnerability. I can just imagine those discussions. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, I have to ask one more question though, which is the reverse of that. Did you ever have a situation where people, you know, despite your best efforts, were still playing politics, were still doing some of the behavior that were now standing probably standing out like a sore thumb when everyone else is displaying trust and vulnerability? Did you have that experience, and if so, how'd you deal with it? Absolutely. And, you know, I think ultimately, I very much believe what I said earlier, which is that that culture isn't about and and core values isn't about flawlessly executing those core values every single time. Like people are going to make mistakes, I'm going to make mistakes, and we want to correct those. But when you do see a repeated pattern of not understanding the culture that we're trying to build, and after receiving feedback multiple times, if, if you still have a problem, I think the other way that you reinforce your culture and reinforce your core values is you hire and fire by them. And so we have removed people from the organization based upon their inability to create psychological safety across the organization. And you know, we could probably have an entire extra podcast on firing and and what to do there. But I think my my belief in candor extends to the firing process as well. You know, you don't need to go into the gory details with everyone so that, you know, on, on why this person wasn't a fit. But I do think you need to be candid and honest around why this person, you know, when people showed up on Monday, doesn't work there anymore. Because that, you know, when someone gets fired, that's a place where psychological safety could be broken. If they don't understand, if it feels unsafe that like you do something, you speak out and then you disappear, you know, on Monday, that that damages psychological safety too. So I think you have to point at like, look, we this person over the course of you know six months received a lot of coaching in this area and just couldn't couldn't adapt to uh, you know the work environment that we want to create. Devin, that's phenomenal and and particularly just love how tactical uh, you were at Pana around creating creating that environment. Uh, clearly it was you know, part of the key to, to why you guys were able to be so successful. So thanks for that. How can listeners get in touch with you or follow what, what you're up to? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, kind of hard to keep in touch with. I don't really use social media. Uh, I'm, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, but if anyone you know, does have a question on anything that we've talked about today, um, or just want, wants to chat about building a company, I, uh, I, I work at a big company now. I've got a regular job. Uh, work hard, but, but love spending time with founders. And it really uh, energizes me when I do get to talk to founders. So, so they can just uh, contact me via email. My email is just my first name at my last name.me. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I would I would love to get in touch with anyone who's building a business here in Colorado or, or in, in any market. Great, Devin. Thanks so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it and learned a lot. Absolutely. 